0: And Welcome to Self Studies, a podcast that explores how identity can inform a person's lived experiences and mental health. I'm Laura Duper, and today I'll be talking with Zina Alterk about religion and mental health, navigating cultural and religious norms, and culturally sensitive care for the Muslim community. I hope that you enjoy this
1: conversation as much as I did. My name is Zena Alturk. My pronouns are she and her. I, again, am so grateful
0: for your time today and to get to talk with you. Would you mind just telling us how you got to where you are now as, as a clinician and kind of what your journey to now is?
1: Mm-hmm. So right now I'm I'm working mostly in private practice. It has been a long journey to get here. You know, initially when I when I decided to go for a master's in mental health counseling, I was thinking a lot about how my community, you know, doesn't really have you know counselors that identify as Muslim, you know, or or Muslims in the community, I guess. And I really wanted to you know be representative of that, you know, to do education, to do outreach, you know, and to do counseling, of course, you know, within the community and provide like a safe haven where you know where Muslims can go, you know, for support or be able to talk about the things that are going on you know there's a lot a lot of like my friends um in high school and college that would talk a lot about them feeling depressed or them feeling really stressed out and not really being able to find you know solace at home right you know finding it through friends and then often you know of course when you put like a lot of you know a lot of the emotions on your friends it, it tends to you know make that relationship rocky as well but it was never talked about you know therapy was never an option right you know it was like you know i'm not i'm not you know quote unquote crazy you know i'm not you know, I am not deficient in any way, right? You know, there's no reason to seek therapy, but then I will dump my emotions on everybody else in a sense, right? So I went into, you know, I did my master's in, in therapy. You know, I, you know, initially, of course, there was not many internships, right? Like at mosques or, or like Muslim community centers. And that was my goal. That's where I wanted to work. So I was working, you know, I work at a substance use facility. You know, I worked in a domestic violence agency, you know, domestic violence prevention agency. Um, I did career counseling. I literally did everything that was you know, possible, except what I really wanted to do. So of course, like when you're licensed, right, when you go into private practice, you kind of get to decide, you know, who, who do I want to work with? Which demographic do I want to target? And oftentimes, as you know, in my Alma profile, I, I put my identity because I feel like it's important, you know, that other Muslims see, you know, you know, this person, this therapist is Muslim, right? You know, she knows what I'm going through, right? She knows what I'm going to talk about. I don't have to do the extra task of like, you know, educating her about my family, I don't have to, you know, feel like she's going to gaslight me in some way, right, or, or to make me feel like, you know, I'm not valid, right, or to tell me to move out, right, when she knows, like, me and my parents relationship is, you know, something more sensitive, right, you know, those kind of things, and once I did that, you know, I started to see, you know, almost like 70% of my clients are, you know, Muslim identifying, or, you know, they, they're they culturally Muslim, right, not really practicing, you know, they benefit a lot from therapy, knowing that they're speaking to someone who understands their background, So I am, you know, I got to where I am. You know, of course, it was a struggle and there was a lot of other work that I had to do to get here, but I, I definitely got to where I wanted to be. Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your journey to where you are now.
0: You occupy such an important space and especially hearing about some of the specific stigma that is in the Muslim community around mental health. And of course, stigma around mental health exists I feel all over and um, it's just so incredible that you're able to meet that need, especially in your own community. I loved what you um, just kind of put your finger on in, in talking about about stigma and kind of how maybe people who are hesitant to try therapy are they still need to talk to someone right and so they're they're putting that I don't want to say burden because it's not always a burden but but they're putting that onto their relationships in their lives and I feel like that is one of the the biggest stigmas around it is like I'm not crazy I but then we all need a little bit of support and how have you found like redefining what mental health care is for for somebody how how have you seen that play out and maybe clients who are more hesitant to come see you or even just in your community
1: mm-hmm. so I'm not I don't want to say the quote-unquote religious per se so I don't often like pull from like different passages like in the Quran or anything like that right you know I don't I never like to show myself you know to my clients as someone who is like you know, very well informed, I guess, like, you know, in terms of like the, the religious texts or anything like that. But I do tell them, you know, that, you know, this, you know, we exist for a reason, you know, therapists exist for a reason, you know, when you go to, you know, when you're feeling sick, when you have a headache, you take medication for that, right? When, you know, you, you know, let's say you, uh, you fall and, and you sprain your ankle, right? You go to the doctor for that. But, you know, how come, how come mental health is different than that? How come, you know, when we're feeling depressed, when we're feeling stressed out, when there's something going on in our lives, why do we hesitate to go to a mental health professional, but not go to like a, like, you know, I guess like a doctor, right. Or a medical professional. So they're both the same thing, right. You know, you're just going and you're seeking help from, from somewhere for something that you feel like may be missing, or you feel like something that you need to hone your skills on and that sort of thing. So I often use that, you know, I think that that's usually beneficial. And also using my own experiences, you know, I don't really self-disclose in sessions. You know, I definitely you know empathize and, and understand, you know, people's experiences. But, you know, if I have to self-disclose, you know, if I'm doing a consultation, I'll say, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've noticed that, you know, when I was younger, we didn't really used to talk about this, you know. But now, of course, you know, you can kind of see, you know, you can kind of do a search and you see so many more Muslim therapists showing up, right? And then also bringing in my experiences, you know, I, I for a short period of time, I was working with the Islamic Center of Passaic County doing therapy in in the mosque right doing it with with people who came in you know teenagers couples that sort of thing and that was with the approval of course of the imam or the religious leader right so showing them that experience telling them like look this religious leader is okay with this right he's even encouraging it you know that sort of thing usually helps them become more comfortable so it's a lot of like pulling on experiences a lot of telling them if you were to do this you could be more present for yourself you could be more present in your relationships right and this is a space where It's confidential, right? Most people are worried that you're going to go and talk to their family about it. You're going into the community. You know, there's always that fear that, you know, if you're from my community, what's stopping you from going into the community and talking about me in a sense, right? Yeah, so telling them that this is totally confidential and you're non-judgmental space, right? Even even opening it up for you know my clients who who used to be Muslim but are don't identify as Muslim anymore, right? There is that extra fear that you know you're a Muslim therapist, you're going to judge me on on what I feel and what I believe in, right? So telling them this is a very non-judgmental space. Your your worship is yours. Your religion is yours. You know that has nothing to do with me, right? That's none of my business. I'm just here to, you know, help you with whatever goals you come into therapy for. So a lot of like affirming them, affirming their beliefs, affirming their experiences, affirming their fears, right? That sort of thing usually helps them become more comfortable um, with the therapy experience.
0: Yeah, that completely makes sense, especially it seems in a religious or spiritual community that there there is a I mean one of the pros is is a community and this you know tightknitness that can really occur in those settings. But of course, on the flip side of that, must be some fear of how is this really confidential? Which of course it is, but that I, I can imagine that that is a hard a hard burden to get over.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's all about trust, right? If they trust you, they'll work with you. If they still feel like the fear is still there, right? The fear that, you know, you'll go back into the community, you'll talk about it, right? You'll, you know, you'll talk to your family about it, right? You'll, you'll make fun of me or anything like that. Then sometimes it's more difficult, right? It sucks that consultation is only so long, right? To kind of draw someone into therapy or engage someone in the therapy, so we work towards that but we want to also recognize that we have limitations right you know i'm not i'm not superwoman like i'm not going to be able to solve all the mental health crises or issues that come up in my community but i am happy that i'm able to to help even if it's a, only a portion of of the community that's such a, a big deal that you are getting
0: to occupy that space and invite people in, and regardless of their of their religious background or practice, but especially if that has been a barrier, and I'm sure it has been to many people in in the Muslim community, if they couldn't find someone who can empathize and experience, or you know, who who has experienced similar a similar upbringing or a similar current experience that. That's such a huge part of who they are, um, which, of course, religion and spirituality do inform a lot of our identity. And, and that is something I, I wanted to ask you about is how you kind of see the way in which religion and spirituality do inform our identities and the way that kind of informs the way that we walk through the world or the way that we perceive the world or perceive ourselves
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, um, especially in my community, of course, I'm only speaking about, you know, what I've seen in my community. Um, But, you know, religion does really guide the way that we, we live our lives, right? We have the five prayers that we make time for every day. We have the five pillars that we follow, right? We dedicate a lot of time to religion and spirituality out of our day, right? So it forms our identity because we see ourselves strictly as like, you know, we're these Muslim beings, right? We follow this specific religion. We do these things, right? But sometimes when we see ourselves, you know, strictly as like these Muslim beings, we're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. Sometimes we don't make space for the other things, right? Like our, our mental health, our physical health, right? Our spiritual health, those kind of things. So even if I were to talk about a misconception that I see, you know, in the Muslim community is that a lot of Muslims do associate mental health with being not religious or not religious enough, right? So when they feel that way and they feel like, okay, I'm not religious enough because of this issue that I'm facing, they tend to be down on themselves, right? They tend to feel discouraged, right? And that affects their religion, right? That affects the way that they follow the religion and then it affects their mental health as well, right? Because if someone is depressed, if someone is feeling down, right, or feeling really anxious about things, they often, they have a hard time moving forward towards what's important to them so being able to explore that right what is important to you is it to be a good muslim does that include taking care of your mental health or taking care of your your physical health you know what can we do to get there and of course you know a big part of taking care of your mental health is is seeing a therapist right is practicing self-care is building a support network building appropriate coping mechanisms right you know those sorts of things thank you that makes so much
0: so much sense especially because Religion does inform not only the way that you maybe operate during the day um, on a day to day basis, but your your whole outlook on the world and on yourself and on the people around you, and in a multitude of ways. Not to stereotype, and that of course makes sense as well that that there would be some misconceptions about mental health in. Any religious community, and of course, I know we're talking specifically about the Muslim community, but because your perception of self and your identity is so intrinsically tied to, I guess not to not to overgeneralize, and please do correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, I'm also come from a religious background, and so I'm probably projecting some of my own beliefs on top, but you know, you're, you're attaching yourself to some higher power. And so if that informs your perception of, of self, and so if you could be more spiritual or more religious or more enlightened or evolved in some way, as per your religious practice, that would solve your mental health issues in some way. You know, I, I know that that is a misconception and maybe a just is in the conversation, I guess, and my own religious background. And so I am curious if that is kind of what you were alluding to earlier, that if I could just be better or more religious or more this, then I maybe wouldn't have these mental health issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it's exactly. It's very similar. Um, and I find it to be very similar across the board, right? With, especially related to the stigma of mental health. And like you were saying, you know, if you, you know, a lot of, I guess like clients that come in a lot of Muslim clients, they or even as, as of course, as myself, you know, having a Muslim upbringing, right? It was always, you know, if you felt like, you know, I'm feeling really sad, I'm feeling really depressed, I'm feeling very sad, you know, your parents will always say, just go pray more, just go read the Quran, you know, put yourself into the faith, just believe in God, right? That kind of thing. And in religion, of course, there's, most people tend to think that, you know, if you are patient, God will just, you know, make it up for you, God will just get you to a better place, help you cross the road if you're struggling. And then there's a, even that extra added thing that, you know, a lot of people tend to believe that if you're feeling depressed, it's because someone gave you the evil eye, right? You know, someone has cursed you in a sense, right? So a lot of it comes back to, you know, in the community, oftentimes we try to tie in the mental health, you know, if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling depressed, go back into the religion, right? Go back into the religion, the solution is going to be there, right? And well, okay, yeah, of course, you know, there are things within the religion that, you know, act as a coping mechanism for you, right? Oftentimes, yeah, you know, I have a lot of clients who are coming into therapy, Muslim clients who come into therapy. And some of their coping mechanisms is I pray, I read Quran, I believe, I believe in God, I have faith in God that he's going to get me through this. And that's a coping mechanism. You know, that's valid. But if you feel like, you know, I'm not allowed to feel these feelings, because I'm not supposed to, right, because there's something wrong with me, I think that's when we draw that line, right? Know that you are important, right? That you do deserve to share these experiences, that you do deserve to talk to someone about it and seek the support, seek the treatment that you need to get to the place that you want to be. So oftentimes, you know, those things that that we use to stigmatize mental health prevent someone from getting the care that they truly deserve, which is not fair.
0: Yeah. So I'm just curious if you found that with being given methods of coping from maybe your parents or maybe from your upbringing and your community of like pray more, read the Quran, some of these things that are, are religious practices, but maybe aren't serving as, as coping mechanisms for, for mental health challenges, not because they're not sufficient, but because they've been used as placeholders when really there's something deeper going on. Does that make sense? I know that there's so many complexities to, to religion and, and especially if you grow up in it or maybe wrestling with what you really believe as you leave your home or are on your own. Is that something common that comes up in your
1: practice? Yeah, I think it comes up pretty often. I think most times people do use that as a, as a coping mechanism, right? Or they, they try those things, right? They pray more, they read more Quran, they still find themselves feeling a little depressed or feeling a little sad, Right. And oftentimes, because in, in the Muslim community, right, we don't really talk about being in a relationship without being married, right? We don't really talk about the, the pressure that, that comes with being a teenager, right, and wanting to maybe smoke marijuana or drink, right, or hang out with your friends or party with your friends, right? you know those kind of things and those kind of things when i guess your mental health is related because those things can't go back to the quran right and find a solution for those things you know the solution is going to be that you have to get married right that you have to leave the relationship that you have to abstain from from drinking and marijuana and all of that right you know those, those that's what that's what the religion says but if there's still the pressure that, that comes from your peers, right, from being in high school and being bullied, right, you know, those sorts of things, there's things that I don't want to sound like controversial, but there's things that religion cannot fix in a sense, right, that require like, okay, how can you build the coping mechanisms, right? Of course, the coping mechanisms could be to have faith in God that he's going to solve this for me, right? I'm going to pray more and hope that something changes. But even, even within the religion, it says, you know, that God can't help you until, unless you help yourself, right? Right. And if you're not doing anything to help that, then most likely the situation won't change. So oftentimes, you know, clients come in and they're like, okay, you know, I'm dealing with X, Y, and Z. I can't go back into the community and talk about it. I can't talk to the Imam about it. I cannot talk to my parents about it. I need somewhere where I can kind of ha- find an outlet that is confidential, that is non-judgmental, right? And be able to talk about, you know, I guess like the challenges that I'm facing because I want this and my religion says no to this. So oftentimes that is the case. And I find that a lot for like teenagers and to young adults, right? they come in because they're like, I'm really struggling with this, right? You know, I cannot talk to my parents about it, or the parents know about it, and their parents are are angry at them about it, not understanding of what they're going through, right? Because it's like, just don't do it. That's what parents usually say, just don't do it, and everything will be fine, right? But it's often not the case, because as you know, we know that teenagers struggle a lot with their mental health, they struggle a lot with like their emotional health. And if they don't have the appropriate support, we don't know what would happen, right? You know, we tend to see a lot of like, suicidal ideation suicidal attempts within like you know teenagers into young adults because they don't have anywhere to go so i i know that we have to do more you know in my community of course you know do more education do more outreach provide more therapists in in the muslim community in mosques you know to to do that education and to tell them that it's okay to talk to someone and just because you know that person is a muslim counselor doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot talk to them because you have to be like 100 percent, you know following the religion right and it gets tricky sometimes because we don't want to mix like religion with therapy, right? We, we, you know, we understand, okay, religion is a big part of your life. We, you know, we definitely incorporate that into therapy, but we're not here to tell you to follow this or tell you what's forbidden versus what's allowed in the religion. So I find myself often telling my clients that they're like, okay, you know, is this forbidden? You know, should I not be doing this? And I'm like, you know, I cannot tell you that, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, dictate what's right or what's wrong, what's normal versus what's abnormal. Right is there a struggle going on within you because of this, right? Are you feeling, you know, conflicted? Or are you struggling to be able to live your life unapologetically, right? Because of these things, let's talk about those, right? Let's do CBT, or let's, let's try different things in order to get you to the place that you want to be. So it's tricky, right? It's definitely, you know, there's, there, you know, there's a place that I don't want to cross when it comes to working with the with Muslim youth or Muslim adults. So I always tell them that during the consultation, you know, this is not religious therapy, right? You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Muslim therapist here, right? I'm a therapist that identifies with the religion, right? That understands the religion, that sort of thing, just so that they kind of, you know, manage their expectations as well when they're entering into therapy.
0: Yeah, totally. That completely makes sense. And, and is so, again, amazing that you give that space and give that space of trust and safety and especially when something, you know, is so intrinsic to your identity. it is so, I can't imagine what a comfort it is to work with someone who identifies in the same way, but also to be able to work out your other issues and, your, and things that without the feeling of, of judgment or condemnation, which I just feel like is, is such a needed space and is very, just amazing that, that you are able to serve that population. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, yeah, I am curious. Uh, just since you you hit on this in your last answer, how do you find that you know when somebody gets to a point in their lives where um, maybe they decide their religious beliefs that they were brought up in or that they previously followed no longer serve them or no longer align with their values? How does that? shape someone's identity? Do you find how does leaving a religious community or wrestling with whether to leave a religious community, how does that kind of impact someone's mental health?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it impacts their mental health a lot, right? Because, you know, if they're in that community, if their family identifies as, as Muslim, and especially if their their family is practicing, right? Um, oftentimes, it's, it's very difficult to leave their religion, right? It's very difficult to open up and tell your parents, you know, I don't want to be Muslim anymore, like, I don't want to be part of this religion anymore. And oftentimes, you just see, you know, I guess, like, you know, I, I just see my clients kind of not practicing the religion, not identifying as Muslim, but they don't tell that to their parents, they still continue to be part of the community. They still, you know, tend to publicly practice the religious sets of beliefs and the, those sorts of things, because, you know, it could be, I guess, in, in a way like unsafe to, you know, to say that you're not part of the religion anymore, right. And then if it's not unsafe, it's the risk of losing that community, the risk of you know, and I'm just saying, of course, this is more um, generalizing, right? I'm sure that it's, it's. you know, specifically there there are some, you know, individuals that can leave and, and they could feel at peace with that. But it, based on what I've seen, you know, it's, it has been difficult for some of my clients not to feel like they're identifying with the religion anymore. But oftentimes I will just see them, you know, as I said, continue to practice it with, when, when they're with their family, continue to identify as such when they're with their family. And then when they're away from their family or away from the community, they kind of live, live a different life or they live the, the life that they themselves want to live. Um, and of course I respect everything, right? They, they come into therapy, they tell me whatever it is that they're going through and I listen, right? I listen and I support, but I can definitely see that it is a big struggle to do that. It definitely creates like this internal conflict of still want my community, but I don't want to identify as such. Um, I do encourage anyone to everyone to kind of identify that the way that they feel most comfortable with, well, also trying to set boundaries. But if you're not able to set boundaries, of course, like with your, with the community, with, with other, with the family, right. To, you know, practice it as safe as you possibly can. Right. If some clients are okay with that, they're like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely okay with having like this, this, you know, two different lives, right. One with, with the community and one away from it. And that's okay. Right. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, if that works for you let it work for you and have the space here to talk about you know, any struggles that you have when you have to be with your family or would be with the community. But it definitely is something that, you know, can cause a lot of depression and sadness, a lot of anxiety, right? A lot of fear. So it definitely does affect, you know, someone's mental health, the way that they identify and whether they want to stay or, or, or leave a religious community.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I would imagine, especially as, you know, there's so much transition happening when you leave your childhood home and then kind of establish yourself as a young adult and I can imagine that that would just bring up a lot of questions of am I going to own this religion for myself or am I going to distance myself from it because now I'm maybe no longer surrounded by it in the same way or I um, feel like I have a choice now that maybe I didn't have before.
1: Mm -hmm. right right definitely
0: I'm also you know curious about these kind of secondary uh, effects of being a part of a religious community or a spiritual community that like you were talking about earlier their their ideas around relationships or around drinking or alcohol um, and also you know gender roles or other things that are dictated by by religion and then kind of kind of reconciling with that within our modern culture. Um, How have you found that your clients or if you want to share any of your own experience as well, how have you kind of found that shape someone's perception of identity or, or relationship to those issues or just their mental health in general and kind of occupying what the culture expects and then what maybe they're their religious community expects.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I could talk from my personal um about this. A lot of it, I think, when it comes to gender roles being dictated by religion, I don't think as much a religion as it is culture. I think religion, you know, has this these specific sayings that, you know, that women are equal to men, right? And and women, you know, they work and their money is theirs, right? And but that, that sort of thing. But oftentimes with culture it gets tricky. And culture, a lot of cultures, a lot of Muslim cultures, you often see, you know, women are supposed to, you know, handle, you know, everything that goes on at home, they're supposed to handle their work, right? They're supposed to take care of everything for everyone at all times, whereas men, maybe they're just kind of out there to work, right? So I, I, you know, I work with a lot of like uh, Muslim teenagers, you know, and, and young Muslim women that often say, you know, it's not fair that I you know I don't get to go outside. It's not fair that, you know, my brother gets to do these things and I don't, right? And I'm. T- I tell them, yeah, it's definitely not fair, right? That the expectations of you would be-, be different from the expectations of your brother only because of gender. So a lot of times, you know, of course they come into therapy for those things, right? You know, I'm having conflict with my parents because of this. I'm having a conflict with my parents because of this thing that is related to my gender and what I can and what I cannot do in, in my community. And of course that, that 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 shapes mental health, right? Because then you start to have so much more resentment towards your parents. It breeds so much more anger, right? Towards you know other people in the home, right? Of course between women and men, right? You know, that sort of thing. So oftentimes, you know, of course, you know, if, if you're feeling that way, if you're feeling like it's unfair, you know, I'm not allowed to leave the house when I want to leave the house, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very restricted in my schedule, that sort of thing. It will create, you know, depression as well, right? It will create a lot of stress and anxiety. It will, in a sense, you know, affect the way that, you know, you, you have relationships with, with others in the future and that sort of thing. I guess like it's more cultural than it is religious, I've noticed within, within the community. Um, And being able to talk about that, you know, being able to to make the world a safer place, right, for women to to go out and, and do things and being able to talk about, you know, why is it okay for, you know, one gender to do something while the other gender does not. So opening, you know, I think opening up conversations around that. Right. And talking to parents specifically, even doing like parenting classes or working on parenting skills just so that all youth are able to experience something very similar to one another. Right. And not one is restricted because of some reason and the other is not.
0: Are those difficult
1: conversations to open up in the community, do you find? I have not opened them up yet, but I anticipate that it will open up only because, you know, I know a lot of parents tend to say, you know, it's much safer for, you know, men than it is for women, right? It's much safer for, you know, our sons to go out than it is for our our girls to go out, right? Do they tend to use that as a way to kind of validate that, you know, of course, you know, we will let our boys do these things, right? Where our girls have to stay home, right? well, we encourage our girls to get married, right? To clean the house, right? You know, to do these things that are considered like feminine, right? Whereas our sons, right, get to go out and play football, get to go and experience, you know, their lives, you know, it's okay, we give them a pass, like if they have girlfriends, if they, you know, drink, right, we give them, you know, a free pass, because we say their boys will be boys, you know, quote, unquote, but we don't extend the same thing to to women. If something happens, right, we tend to you know, blame women, right, for, for what it is that has happened, right, because we told them, you know, we told them not to go out, right, so why did they go out, quote-unquote. It's existed for a long time, it still exists till now, right, and I think it, it's going to be a lot of unlearning and a lot of working, you know, in the community in order to, you know, open everybody's minds about these things and, and be able to, you know, show everyone that, you know, of course, it's, you know, we want to identify that the world is not really a safe place, so that oftentimes, yes, you know, women are targeted, right, because of sexism, right, you know, that's, that's more, that's something more structural, more societal. But while that happens, we want to be able to trust our girls, right, we want to be able to trust our daughters, because if we don't, then, you know, it keeps them, you know, in fear, right, in a sense, it prevents them from being able to, you know, truly experience their lives out of fear that someone is going to hurt them, or, or someone is going to do something that puts them in fear, right. So being able to talk to the community about that, we're also recognizing, you know, we, we, we cannot talk to a community without also recognizing that, of course, there is this fear, right? Your fear is valid. Of course, that you're going to be worried your parents, right? When you're able to in- empathize with them, right? When you're able to relate to them, then it opens up those conversations. But we can't go into the community and say, you know, it's not fair that, you know, your sons go out and, and your daughters don't, right? You know, what's the point of that? You know, what's the purpose of that? Or You know, it's called them sexist or anything like that. When, of course, when we go anywhere and we, we tend to go into the blame and negativity, we don't get anywhere, right? We don't get the responses that we want.
0: I think it's such a good point that you brought up that a lot of this is a lot of maybe these cultural norms are, are very well-intentioned and are in service of protecting and, and that has just been perpetuated over, over years. And, and that that is, I'm sure why it's difficult to even have these conversations if they are had because it's just the norm, like anything else, you know, that to to question it or to to question maybe there is a better way or there is a more equitable way forward. That's just difficult to have, especially when it is rooted in something that is inherently protective and and seeking the protection and, and betterment of someone's life, you know, from from their perspective. So that completely makes sense. And I think that's an important point to bring in that maybe we're misunderstanding the intention or maybe maybe uh, conflating like you said religious norm and, and cultural mm-hmm.
1: norm right 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 yeah that's often the case right because we hear a lot in the news about specific things that that often you know people would say oh that's islam right you know that's that's what they believe right well oftentimes it's not really and of course you know a lot of muslims are guilty of this right we oftentimes Encourage more cultural beliefs or more cultural. We enforce the cultural expectations more so than the religious, and then that causes, of course, confusion for everyone, right? Because we grow up thinking, yeah, we're not allowed to do this, or we're not allowed to do this, right? Where oftentimes it's more cultural, right? It's more based in the culture, which a lot of people tend to feel is not something that's as mandatory to follow as it is the religious.
0: That is so true that religion can so easily be kind of co opted to push the whatever cultural or societal norm we want to push forward and and whatever is beneficial to to that majority or that agenda in any way
1: um and oftentimes of course you know we we definitely get into that in session you know we talk about it we talk about of course i don't enforce any of that but you know i open you know if the client wants to talk about it we do talk about it right and we we talk about yeah you know, yeah this is more cultural than it is religious and a lot of times clients like teenagers would say you know my parents know that this is not part of the religion why do they you know enforce this on me right or why do they have this expectation of me and we talk about it right we get a lot into intergenerational trauma right a lot of like Muslims they come from from countries that are like war torn right or there is some kind of conflict going on so we want to be able to to recognize that and we also recognize that of course a lot of our parents didn't kind of grow in their mental health the, the way that we did right you know, a lot of our parents, they feel serious, serious to them that if you're lacking in, in mental health, it means that you're not, you're not giving a hundred percent to your religion. And that's something that they truly feel. Right. So we don't, we don't come at them and we tell them it's wrong. Right. You shouldn't be believing that way. You know, just because they themselves feel that way. Right. We come at them. We say, you know, we try, you know, I work with a lot of my clients on setting boundaries with their family and on, on communication. I'm like, we role play a lot in session. Like, okay. You know, do you want to role play? Do you want to talk to your dad about how you're feeling? Right. Okay. Let's, let's do this. And let's talk about What if your dad doesn't respond well to this? What if your mom doesn't respond well to this? Is it accepting that there's some things that are out of your control? Is it continuing to work towards that thing that that you want to get out of your relationship with your parents? That sort of thing. But, you know, I, I like to talk to my clients about not necessarily excusing their parents, but validating their parents' experiences. And knowing that, you know, I feel like we're lucky, you know, we get to talk about mental health more often. We get to explore our feelings more often. In today's society, you know, it's not like, You know, we talk about our feelings that were automatically shut down, right? Or, you know, people tell us they stigmatize it as often as they did maybe when our parents were younger, right? You know, I can't imagine, you know, my mom going to therapy, my dad going to therapy when they were younger, as much as I, you know, I can imagine them going now.
0: That's such an important point as well, that intergenerational perception of mental health and of therapy. I think that is something that we don't consider enough, and especially as younger generations, begin to, and, and especially in the age we are in where things are more online and more talked about and we can connect with communities we could never connect with, that there is a, there's more of a conversation happening around mental health and it is becoming more normalized in a way that was not accessible for generations before.
1: And I think it's important to validate that, right? So we want to be able to validate everyone's experiences. We don't want to consider our our experiences to be more superior than our parents, mm-hmm. right? Or our grandparents or anyone that that has come before us. I'm curious as we continue to
0: talk about identity and and perception of self and where we want to identify with our religious upbringing, where where you know maybe pulling away from that or pulling away from maybe some of the things that our parents believe and of course, they're another big part of religion in identity is talking about religious discrimination and intolerance and and violence, of course, which are seem to be incredibly consistent and so devastating. And I'm I'm just as much as you want to talk about it, I would love to just ask you about how. You've seen faith-based discrimination or the threat of it or the threat of violence or any other hate, um, how you've seen that impact mental health in your community and the clients that you serve.
1: You know, when 9-11 happened, I was, uh, was I think, nine years old. So I wasn't really like in the, of course, like in the therapist game uh, at that point to kind of see what, what it may have looked like for, for a majority of Muslims. But I mean, I haven't seen it as much in, in the clients that I work with right now, as much as much as like relationship issues or parent, you know, parental conflict, you know, those sorts of things. But of course, for my client who identify as Muslim who maybe like the woman who wear a hijab, you know, that sort of thing, like they, they often feel like they they've had like experiences where they feel like they were targeted or, or people would look down on them or talk down to them because they feel like, you know, they're not educated or because they're not civilized, you know, that sort of thing. So we 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 often talk about that, and I and I validate those experiences, right? You know, it, it is a scary world. Recently, you know, definitely it's been, you know, I, I've been working with a lot of clients who don't identify as Muslim, who you know identify as Asian or Asian American, and and have fear, of, of course, like the backlash or of, of, of violence, right? You know, targeted towards them, right, because of because of the way that they look like or because you know of where they they come from. And I often feel like it's it's very similar, you know, the way that I validate them, the way that we talk about. Their experiences, the way that I would talk about, you know, the experiences that, that come up in the Muslim community, talking about, you know, how can we go to the mosque and not feel like something may happen, you know, someone might come into the mosque or, or, or something like that, right? You know, how can we really be able to, you know, practice our, our religion, right? And practice our faith, right? And, and those kind of things without feeling like, you know, someone is going to hurt us or someone is going to target us because of our beliefs, so it definitely is very valid to, you know, to have that fear on a very constant basis, especially if you're Muslim identifying, right? And if you publicly are perceived as Muslim, because we, 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 we've seen a lot of like, you know, attacks on the Sikh faith, right? Because often people feel like they are Muslim, right? They look at them, they're like, oh, okay, this is a Muslim person. I'm going to, you know, you know, retaliate against them for what had happened during 9-11 or, or you know, for, for what's happening, you know, in the Middle East, those sorts of things you know, that has an effect on a person's mental health, because they live in fear, right? They, they might not be able to leave the house, they might not, you know, um, you know, whereas they want to maybe practice more publicly, they might make it hidden, like at home, right? They may not go to the mosque, they might not, you know, wear a hijab, if it's for women, you know, that sort of thing. And we talk about that. And we also talk about the microaggressions that people often experience, like in work, in different places, people may may talk down to them, right? Or, may you know do very subtle discrimination that doesn't sound like discrimination right but it definitely it's definitely perceived as such um, and that sort of thing and of course you know it affects their relationship to their religion because some muslim identifying individuals i guess are they might feel like you know i shouldn't have to feel ashamed of this right you know maybe god is mad at me because i feel ashamed of my religion because i'm hiding it so it could go that way or it could go the other way the feeling like some people become more proud right they become more you know, I'm going to, you know, publicly become Muslim, right, you know, show myself as Muslim, because I don't want to live in fear, right? I, I want to be able to, to broadcast that, you know, I deserve to live freely and, and in peace as much as the, the next person. But it definitely, you know, especially the fear factor, I think, and like you said, you know, the fear of religious discrimination, fear of intolerance, fear, of course, of violence, being something that's always going to exist, because we just don't know, you know, we can't control other people's actions, we can't control how other people grew up, you know, knowing about religion, you know, and that sort of thing. So, of course, on the subway, right, you know, it's New York City, right? It's we're on the subway, you know, now recently there's news almost every day about someone being attacked, you know, someone being some kind of violence going on against, you know, against other people. So I think more now more than ever, maybe with COVID kind of dying down and the world opening up a little more often, I think now we're going to see a lot more fear of like riding the subway, being out in public. Now that we're going back into work, I think that that fear is going to, to come up again, right? You know, especially because when COVID came, you know, when the pandemic started, although, you know, of course, very unfortunate thing. Um, A lot of clients often say, you know, it was a good thing for them emotionally, right? Like they got to stay home, you know, they didn't have to experience the stress of commuting or having to be around other people. And now there's like this post-pandemic anxiety of having to go back and having to, if you're not having the option of remote, right, it kind of feels like it's forced. Um, You know, you have to go to work and you have to experience those things. So validating them, also talking about you know, how can you be safe, right? You know, how can you protect yourself when you're outside? You know, we don't always just kind of focus like on the mental health aspect. We want to talk about the practical, right? Of course, we can talk about the anxiety and the fear, but are you being, you know, are you observing your surroundings, right? Are you able to protect yourself, right? You know, are you able to manage the schedule in a way that you feel most comfortable with, right? You know, are you able to leave a little bit earlier in the morning before there's for rush hour? Are you able to, you know, leave from work? Um, at a pr- appropriate time, you know, do you know where the buses are, you know, are they in a dark area? Are they, is there a lot of people, if we talk about those things, because those things matter, right? And one doesn't come without the other, you know, we want to be able to talk about you being safe, you keeping yourself safe, right, realistically, and then you keeping, you know, you being able to manage the anxiety and the fear on a more emotional and, and mental level.
0: Yeah, I'm curious too, as you are talking about this and something we've hit on before and in a few of my other conversations with clinicians is this idea of, you know, your public facing identity and what you kind of claim in public and what are the things that you claim in private. And I know that this is, we've been kind of talking about this throughout, especially if, you know, you encounter a client who maybe no longer chooses to practice, but is, but does so when they're on their family or around certain members of the community. Um, but then has kind of is, is a bit living a double life. And I know that of course, in the Muslim community, there, there is a kind of a public identifier, especially for women of the hijab. And I think, you know, that, that of course is something that, that kind of immediately like, gives you away, quote unquote. And so I, I'm curious in your, in your work or in your own life as you, how you have seen that kind of duality of, of this is my, because, you know, typically I think we in America, and maybe this is an overstatement, I, because it's, it's, it's maybe not true anymore, but I just was, was raised with the belief, like your religion is your business. It's your Private, it, like you, it's it's up to you, and and of course we know in actuality people really care and do do have their perceptions about every religion. But I guess in saying that, I'm just curious as you've kind of seen these clients and your own community kind of navigate that public and private persona, and do you find that that is something that that many choose to adopt, or um, is it something that You see cause any kind of like cognitive dissonance of should I feel shame for not publicly declaring this or should I um, internalize this and and kind of where that lands for for many people.
1: Right, right. I think there definitely is a lot of cognitive dissonance around this very topic. I think that, you know, definitely, you know, a lot of people do tend to experience guilt for not publicly showing themselves off as Muslim, right? You know, and when we talk about publicly showing yourself off as Muslim, we want to be able to, to recognize that it's often for women, right? You know, women wear the hijab, right? If they choose to, of course, it's not something that, that all women do, and it's not something that that also we might, I guess, associate with being a good Muslim or a bad Muslim. You know, a lot of people tend to feel like they're great Muslims, right? They're following the faith and they're not wearing religion. They're not wearing, I'm uh, sorry, the scarf. So, you know, that's, of course, that's a different topic. But um, I think oftentimes when someone wants to wear it, they want to kind of wear it because it's part of the religion. They want to wear it because they feel like it, it satisfies themselves and satisfies God, right? And that sort of thing. They want to feel closer to the religion by wearing it. But the fear itself overtakes person, right? And rightfully so. It's definitely valid to, to definitely be scared of wearing it publicly you know I think it does definitely create that shame that create that create that like the internalized shame right that I I do want to do this but I'm so scared of how other people react but I don't want to be scared of other people I want to please God and I think that goes back to the association with mental health you know if I was if I was a better Muslim you know I would be able to wear it right if I was a better person if I was more observant if I really believed in God you know I would wear the hijab right I wouldn't care about what other people have to say because I feel like God is going to protect me I think a lot of the dissonance exists in that. But oftentimes we want to be able to talk about the fear is valid. So the fear is based in reality. We see it, right? We definitely see it. We hear news of it. It's not something that is unique to any, you know, I guess like it is a unique experience, right? But it's definitely not something that, you know, doesn't happen. So we want to be able to talk about that, right? That helps to kind of reduce some of the shame that someone experiences. You know, we want to be able to talk about why do you feel that way, right? Why do you feel like, you know, because you're not wearing the hijab, because you're not publicly, you know declaring your religion right that that makes you a bad muslim right or a bad person so definitely opening opening up that conversation and exploring that i find cbt to be you know really helpful when i work with you know on those things because we we try to basically identify what are the rational thoughts versus what are the irrational thoughts is this something and we talk about is this something that's based in reality or is this something that you, you you feel like kind of exists within you right that you know it's just more of a a fear, right? More, more of anxiety around on a specific topic or a specific subject or about, of course, the hijab or, or the religion, or is this something that you feel like, you know, we could work on, right? And we can kind of talk about how it's valid and how you can kind of take the appropriate steps in terms of CBT, you know, in terms of like trying to alleviate some of this, the distress by developing more, you know, um, like adaptive cognitions or, or behaviors written in, you know, in response to what you're feeling, or is this something that, you know, you actually feel yourself? So being able to, you know, talk about what is the difference between, you know, what you're currently feeling right now and and what is based in reality, right? How can we, you know, keep you safe? How can we talk about the the fears? How can we talk about the stress and anxiety? And then how can we talk about keeping you safe in public? How can we talk about, you know, reducing, of course, the association that you're a bad Muslim from, you know, not practicing the religion or from not not wearing the hijab and that sort of thing, right? Because if we can talk about, you know, it's okay if you have fear, you know, validating that. It's okay if you, you know, there's fear around wearing the hijab, you know, but you yourself want to wear it, right? So that matters too, right? So talking about those things and, you know, exploring it and and keeping like a door open to communication about those things often helps. But a lot of times clients will see you as a Muslim counselor, you know, you're supposed to say these things, you're supposed to validate me, right? So oftentimes, you know, the other portion of it is like, you know, if only an imam would talk to me about this, if only a religious leader would validate this experience, I feel like it would be more valid than talking to someone else because I can't, of course, assure them that yeah within the religion it's okay right you know i don't go into that because i'm not super educated and i you know i don't necessarily like to mix the two but but validating that for them and you know oftentimes when i was working with ice with islamic center Pase county i would i would tell the clients like okay do you want should we make a meeting you know should we create a meeting and talk to the imam about this fear right while i'm there so that i can kind of you know guide the discussion right or talk about it in a way that doesn't go into of course like this is forbidden and this is this is allowed, right? You know, would that help? You know, should we go and talk to the the religious leader together? Which I'm hoping we'll see more of in the future. Of course, like more faith-based organizations teaming up with more mental health organizations um, and that sort of thing. But I think that that could be helpful to reduce some of the, you know, the dissonance that I see in the community. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know that we are
0: running out of time so sadly because I feel like we, you know, just scratched the surface. You are, are bringing so much wisdom and expertise into this area and I'm really grateful for your time. I wanted to just give you a moment to to touch on anything that you didn't get a chance to touch on that you that you'd want to share.
1: So I think that, you know, uh, uh, regarding like the community outreach, outreach experience and how community can be a tool against stigma. I think you know a lot of a lot of times there are a lot of clients that come into therapy a lot of muslim you know identifying clients that come into therapy and talk about you know i had this other counselor who didn't necessarily you know validate my experiences who thought that you know if you're having problem with your an issue with your parents just move out right or just just leave right or if there's a problem with the religion you know why do you stay in the religion why don't you just you know exit the religion right and they feel like it's very insensitive or like they're of course around like you know their parents being immigrants and their parents being worried about them why don't you just cut up your parents right or those kind of things i'm not really sure if there are like muslim-based like courses right or you know culturally sensitive courses around you know in the muslim community but researching those kind of things being able to focus more on validating and not putting your personal beliefs into the session right with, with the clients that of course if you're not you're not informed about their religious you know their religion or their culture right you know being able to just kind of focus on more on validating more on reading about their experiences you know more on um you know speaking to other muslim counselors you know which i've had a lot of people reach out to me and say you know can you tell me more about this like my client is is focused on this you know can you tell me more about what this what does this even look like in the culture right you know what you suggest i do with this client just so that you know i i would hope at some point that in the muslim community they would reach out to and if they I'm, i'm saying like if they don't find a muslim counselor they'd be able to reach out to any counselor that's available without the fear that the counselor won't you know, won't respect their religion, right? Or won't won't respect their cultural beliefs. So I think that that could definitely be be a helping point.
0: Thank you so, so, so much for your time and your expertise and insight. And it's such an important topic and area. And we're just really thankful that, that you gave us the time you did today. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that I was here as well. This episode was produced by Dave
0: Emmert. Self-Studies is a podcast by Alma, a company dedicated to simplifying access to high-quality in-network mental health care for both consumers and clinicians. To learn more, visit HelloAlma.com.